This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. We're officially two weeks into open enrollment for the 2018 marketplace under the Affordable Care Act. And enrollment numbers thus far have exceeded early sign-up numbers from all of the previous open enrollments significantly. And that's good news. The bad news is, and it bears repeating, this year folks have a lot less time to sign up, only six weeks. More than 600,000 people signed up for coverage in the first four days of open enrollment, which began on November 1st. And Mark, if I think back to the very first year of open enrollment, we didn't see anything <laughs> like that. It takes time for it people to does. get used to the idea and understand the process. Of this year's early enrollees, almost 140,000 people are new customers on the exchange. Mm -hmm. So in spite of the near complete elimination of the marketing budget for open enrollment, consumers are taking charge of their coverage and signing up in far greater numbers than analysts or the Trump administration had expected. Well, we want to again remind people that you don't have the luxury of procrastinating this year. Enrollment ends in mid-December, so no time to wait. If you're thinking of uh, enrolling, do it now. Meanwhile, the president has announced his pick for Secretary of Health and Human Services. Alex Azar ran Eli Lilly's U.S. operation and worked at the Department of Health and Human Services under George W. Bush. Whoever's in charge, one thing is certain, health care is in the throes of transformation. And that brings us to our guest today, Ted Roberts is Managing Director of Ideas 42, a nonprofit design and consulting firm that has created a model for bringing behavioral design disciplines to healthcare. And Lori Robertson will be stopping by, the managing editor of factcheck.org. She is always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. And we'll get to our interview with Ted Robertson in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Taking away the individual mandate, well, that's part of the plan embedded in the tax proposal put forth in the Senate. Removing the individual mandate requiring all Americans to purchase insurance would eliminate the tax penalty that people would have had to pay for not purchasing insurance. But it would also likely lead to millions of Americans no longer having health insurance coverage. About 13 million over 10 years would lose coverage if the individual mandate went away. The Congressional Budget Office warns the tax bill as it currently stands would add about $1.5 trillion to the deficit, and that would trigger automatic cuts to Medicaid, about $25 billion. Meanwhile, Seema Verma, administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, is advancing plans to install work requirements for so-called able-bodied people receiving Medicaid benefits. It reflects a plan that was passed under her leadership in the state of Indiana. Half of Americans are suffering from high blood pressure. That after the American Heart Association issued new guidelines for measuring blood pressure, lowering the threshold from 140 over 90 down to 130 over 80. Advances in heart medications have already led to a significant reduction in death from cardiac events, but it's still the leading cause of death in this country. This lowering of the threshold will enable clinicians to help identify those at risk earlier. And the experts also recommend more focus on lifestyle and behavior changes, diet and 
an exercise to be applied before automatically initiating medication. Still, the numbers are concerning. Based on these new guidelines, 63 percent of Americans between the ages of 45 and 75 have hypertension. Some 100 million Americans in total now considered to have high blood pressure. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Ted Robertson, Managing Director of Ideas 42, a nonprofit design and consulting firm that uses insights from behavioral sciences to address complex social problems in healthcare, city government, and national civic entities. Before joining Ideas 42, Mr. Robertson was a visiting scholar and fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Prior to that, he assisted the Los Angeles Transit Authority in redesigning the public transportation system to be more supportive of public health. He earned his BA in history from Oberlin and his master's in public administration from Harvard Kennedy School. Ted, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, we are excited about the transformations uh, that are going on in healthcare. It's quite dramatic, and your organization, Ideas 42, has been developing strategies to address the complex challenges of organizational redesign for all kinds of entities, from 4,100 companies to large municipalities. And you just completed a comprehensive study for the Commonwealth Fund, which suggests that up till now, we may have missed a vital link in our quest to build a more efficient and sustainable healthcare system. Uh, the need to focus more on behavioral design thinking. I wonder if you could share with our listeners why you think this is an important missing link in the redesign of, of healthcare. Uh, behavioral design is a term that, that we use to think about the application of behavioral science and behavioral economics in, in the real world. You know, medicine is filled with a lot of very smart people doing great clinical trials, but there's still a problem around the delivery of services. And behavior design, its strength is that it takes behavior science rooted in the, the idea that we are not these hyper-rational spocks that traditional economics thinks we are. So most service delivery in government and in healthcare and, and elsewhere assumes that all people will perfectly calculate the utility of any action at all times. The reality is that people are people, and that's not true. But now there's a lot of science behind how that's true and that when people are not uh, these sort of hyper-rational spocks, they actually act in predictable ways. If you take that insight and combine it with another revolution, which is around impact evaluation, you can put those two, two together and continuously look for new designs that are more effective and then measure and, and make sure you're actually having the, the outcome you want. So the classic example of this outside of healthcare is, is around energy where energy statements that they get from their utility that compares them to their neighbors. Well, that's a behavioral science insight, and it gets a, about a 2 to 3% reduction in energy use, entirely framed around how people think they are in comparison to their neighbors, simply uh, keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak. And in fact, the science behind it will show you the closer the cohort, the more effective it is. So if you compare them to, say, your 100 most efficient neighbors, that gets the strongest effect. And so it's taking that behavioral science that people relate to the social norm and, and react to it and operationalize it in a way that then changes behavior. So for us, it's really about helping people matching the, the follow-up behavior to their intention. In medicine, there are now more and more examples like this. So one little one is uh, a very interesting study at the University of Pennsylvania 
medical center uh, was having problems uh, having providers prescribe generic drugs. So it would come up in a drop-down list, and, and you could pick which one you wanted to do, but it, there was no immediate default. Well, what they did was change the system in a pretty small coding fix that they could do locally, and they defaulted to the generic option, and, and their rates went from mid-70s percent to high 90s. <laughs> wow. So it's taking those sorts of things that we think can be applied a lot more in health to get uh, better outcomes. I think that those of us who are within the healthcare system often are very challenged by the fact that our reality is we've organized the ways we deliver care over a long period of time, yet we're trying to remain agile enough to transform that system. I understand you've really focused in on this at Ideas 42, this idea that we can't stop what we're doing to start a new way. We've really got to transform while we are fully operational in whatever sphere we're in. So maybe you could talk with us about what some of your strategies have been in executing the systems redesign. Yes, we've started to develop a a framework that we run through to break through some of those hurdles. When thinking about working with an organization or a department or on a problem, uh, we clearly look for buy-in from the top so that the concept of of trying this at all has uh, strong support. We could put it into priorities of the organization to, one, incentivize everyone because people are trying to fix big problems, and so if you can be a helpful tool, they want to use you. And two, to give people some risk to try something new because we do operate it's evidence-based, it's rooted in science, but it's still new and has to be tried. But equally important is that you find the champions at the department level that may already be trying things but want this added capability and capacity. The second thing, though, is that we've gotten very practiced at thinking through what type of problems to take on. Because in government and in healthcare, there are a thousand things you could do separating out, okay, that's an interesting problem, but that's really a structural problem or that's a political problem, whereas this is a behavior problem. And and sort of separating those out, we can curate that, get some results, and and sort of work your way in. And we look for where there's already a work process in place so we can integrate without having to create a new, the data is already being collected. Mm -hmm. Along the way, we build into our work training people how to do all of this Some of it is people are already doing impact evaluation in medicine is much more developed than it is in government. But the behavioral science aspect probably is still very new. And so helping, you know, showing people that such that you're leaving skills behind, uh, I think, is appealing and gets people to to buy in. and You know, Ted, I really like that your report focuses on the importance of behavioral design teams, which you say brings vital perspective to the process organizational redesign. And the challenge, though, is often a cultural one the notion we've always done it this way. You know, we have a thousand people who work for us, but Margaret and I are the leaders of the organization and we interview everyone who works at the organization. And 95% of the people say, I've never met, let alone been interviewed by the CEO. How could the leaders at the top get champions if you've never had a conversation with them? I'm wondering if you could walk through our listeners this process of behavioral design team intervention and why you think it's such a powerful tool. When we're looking at any problem, do we have a a change champion or or someone who wants to try something new? Are there incentives aligned to make this change? So is it a priority for the organization, either because of cost or outcomes or both? And then how do we then actually get in there? So we identify the problem. We then uh, test and if we get good results on testing, usually in pilots and various prototypes, then we look to, to scale in some way. What's 
I think different about behavior design is even going back to the problem. So we sort of strip away assumptions in the problem and, and, and also right size it. We don't try and say, even though we're interested, say, in solving poverty, we look for something that might be how do we create more insurance access for certain uh, segments and what's their access and, okay, let's look at a problem that way. So we, we get the right scope. We will get out and interview all parties involved. So in this case, you could imagine doctors and nurses, staff, but also the patients and the patient's families and, and that sort of thing. So we get out and go look at the physical space or the digital process. The point of that is then to take that data and match it against the actual evidence in the, in the behavioral science sphere. So we'll go and look at what set of studies have already been done on that particular problem. So if you want to look at uh, the use of statins, we would go and look at who else has done behavioral science statin example. And we would curate that science and say, what does it suggest might be both the actual bottleneck to why someone's not following through? Is it just a hassle? Is there some sort of threat there that's pushing them away? And we sort of analyze those bottlenecks, look for the ones that we think are the two or three top ones, and then we, we would try and, within the constraints of the system we're in, build a design that, that we think could be effective. So it's that really that diagnosis and design space that behavioral science has a lot to offer. You've uh, noted that Dr. Peter Pronovost, who we've also had on the show here, has done more to save lives in healthcare than any single laboratory discovery of the past decade with his simple but so elegant checklist uh, before surgery with dramatic reduction in errors and infections and complications. Maybe you could talk with us about how you're applying these seemingly simple ideas as you advise health systems to improve their processes and try and reduce errors and get better outcomes. Sure. The work that Peter and, and likewise Tugwande have done around checklists and safety inside the hospital is mm-hmm. astonishing. And, and, and in many ways, it's rooted around, uh, again, core human behavior. So I think uh, Dr. Provenos, example, he, he started to notice it in, in the airline industry where they started to realize that people in a time-pressured condition, they will forget things that they know. They'll neglect to perform basic steps that are critical but by human nature are, you know, pressure cooker. And, and so they, they miss something. They miss washing their hands. They miss getting a, a sterile mask that elevates the risk to the patient. So the checklist is, in essence, a, a shortcut, you know, that gives people heuristics to go and say, I need to be careful. I don't go too much on automatic pilot. I and mean, here's a quick way to make sure I've gotten the core thing that I need to do. And that's exactly what he did. And, and now the surgical checklist for Tulawande is being spread and scaled around the world. It is very exciting. And we're speaking today with Ted Robertson, Managing Director of Ideas 42, a nonprofit design and consulting firm that uses insights from behavioral sciences to address complex social problems in healthcare, city government, and national civic entities. Ted, you know, we had the great opportunity of having a good friend and from LA who heads up the city health uh, system, uh, Dr. Mitch Katz. And uh, Mitch, I think, really sort of aligns with everything that you were thinking about. You know, he he looked at this problem of how could you as a physician get underserved and uninsured patients to specialists? And then he came up with, let's transfer knowledge about the patient and not transfer people, right? So we created something called eConsults. I'm wondering if you could talk about what you've learned when you applied behavioral design techniques there, and uh, maybe you could share some examples. You know, my earlier work in Los Angeles was around transportation, and, and the, that was at a moment even earlier in behavioral science that you had a, a system that even on, on the basic things 
wasn't really accounting for uh, human behavior. So, you know, you could think about that in terms of, of the bus or the train. It, you know, it was hard to get on or hard to get off. It was hard to get a pass. You know, it just wasn't simple and built that way. So, Ted, one of the ever-present challenges for clinicians in healthcare is to get patients the appropriate tool to initiate their own behavior change to improve their health. What have you found successful in generating behavior change and and maybe self-care specifically around health in the patient population? What do you think? I don't think behavioral scientists figured out the the complete solution by any means in terms of medication adherence or so on and so forth. But I think that there are some helpful lessons. One is make it easy. I know that sounds, yep. well, of course you yep. want to make it easy, but it, it actually matters. So traditional economics would say that if it really matters to you, you'll make sure something happens anyway. But the reality is, even though that actually matters, people don't, and for a number of reasons. And one of them is it's actually not as easy to do that. So giving people default pathways are extremely powerful, and it's it's easy to lose sight of that. When you're asking people to do something, it really helps to prompt people with a very clear, actionable step. One, two, and three is what you should and can do, uh, what we call closing the intention to action gap. Then actually having people do plan making and, and reminding them. So there's a famous behavioral science study around flu vaccinations where Katie Milkman at uh, Wharton, she took a fairly standard small little postcard that told you when the flu vaccinations could be gotten, but just added a box that said, okay, but this is the day and time that I will go. That got a significant bump in how many people actually followed through. So, Ted, tell our listeners about Ideas 42. What was the impetus that got you over the Rubicon there to say healthcare was the place you wanted to be? Uh, we started actually out of uh, academia and academic labs at Harvard, MIT, and Princeton. It was still the very end of where behavioral science is still all in academia and was starting to jump to the applied space. We became a nonprofit that was dedicated to taking behavioral science and applying it for social good. So now we work all around the world on issues from post-secondary education, uh, getting low-income, mostly first-generation students uh, into college and persistent through college, or a whole set of financial products that could be better designed for low- and middle-income communities. We work sort of across both global health and then government, and so we helped launched under the Obama administration, the first of its kind in the the U.S. behavioral design team in government. So we sat in the federal uh, government and and helped to run a whole set of these experiments, all curated science, all tested, and across different domains, health and otherwise. For health, I think there's a whole host of behavioral problems here, and you can build a methodology that in an almost engineering-like way can help redesign processes. There's a lot of stock in health around clinical trials and around innovation, and that's great. Well, that same rigorous process based on on past evidence, testing and seeing what what works and then going to the next step can be built in on service design, and you can do it with behavior science. And (laughs) and that's the the opportunity, I think, that's in front of us. We've been speaking today with Ted Robertson, Managing Director of Ideas42, a nonprofit design and consulting firm that uses insights from the behavioral sciences to address complex social problems in healthcare, city government, and national civics entities. You can find their report on behavioral design teams at thecommonwealthfund.org or follow his work at ideas42.org or follow them on Twitter at ideas42. Ted, thank you so much for joining us on Conversation on healthcare today. Thank you so much. 
Conversations on Healthcare. We want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? President Donald Trump says that branded prescription drugs are generally cheaper outside the U.S., and that's true. But he distorts the facts when he says, quote, as usual, the world is taking advantage of us. Prescription drug pricing experts say Trump's complaint is with pharmaceutical companies and U.S. legislators who balk at such cost-controlling measures as having the federal government negotiate drug prices for Medicare. Trump made his comments on the cost of prescription drugs during a cabinet meeting on October 16th. He said the U.S. is paying prices that are double, triple, quadruple what other countries pay. But experts say the overall difference from other countries isn't that large. One expert told factcheck.org that branded prices on average are between 10% and 40% higher in the U.S. compared with other industrialized countries. This comparison doesn't include cheaper generic drugs, which make up about 84% of filled prescriptions in the United States. As for Trump's claim that the world is taking advantage of the U.S., experts told us the U.S. is the one that's responsible for high cost of drugs, not other countries. Most other developed countries have a centralized healthcare system that allows the government to negotiate drug prices with the pharmaceutical companies, not the U.S. In fact, a Medicare drug law passed in 2003 specifically prohibited Medicare from negotiating prices with drug companies. Lawmakers, mostly Republicans, have resisted the idea. Some say price controls would limit research and development. Trump said he wanted to, quote, bring our prices down to what other countries are paying. But he didn't say what measures he was supporting to do that. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Soaring prescription drug prices have been taking a toll on American health consumers. But until now, most didn't understand how those prices were set, or more importantly, that they might actually have some say in what their prescription drugs cost them. Many Americans have resorted to purchasing prescriptions online often illegally or overseas. While cheaper, these solutions come with their own risk. So an enterprising pair of brothers have created their own solution. Matthew and Jeffrey Chaikin founded Blink Health, a free online destination that links patients with prescription sources that can be up to 90% cheaper than what's found on the traditional market. The way it works is you go to BlinkHealth.com, you look up the name of your medication, the price you see there is the price you get at over 60,000 pharmacies nationwide. If that price is less than what you normally pay for your prescription, you pay for it online, we provide you with what we call a digital Blink pharmacy card. You show that card to the pharmacist, they type in the codes on that card, and your medication rings up as $0. Co-founder Jeffrey Chaikin to CBS News recently, they negotiated prices directly with drug manufacturers. We actually have contracts with every single pharmacy in the United States. So what the nature of the contract is, is that they accept our prices. 
So we have different prices at each pharmacy, but what's important for consumers is that when they go to Blink, there's one price that they're going to see. They'll get that price no matter which pharmacy they go to. The Chaikin brothers say the element that makes it work so well is customers can purchase the drugs online, but still pick them up at their trusted local pharmacy. Since Blink launched last year, users have saved millions of dollars on prescriptions, and a majority of those prescriptions are filled for $10 or less. A welcome reality at a time when not only drug prices are going up, but co-pays and out-of-pocket costs are rising dramatically as well. Blink, an online site for purchasing prescription drugs, offering consumers an option to safely fill prescriptions at a far more competitive price than the going rate, allowing them to stay healthy and save significant money at the same time. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.